0: This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. A gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. As the kids are making their way to their classes, I would encourage you to turn with me to our New Testament reading first, found in Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, and after that we will read our sermon text found in Haggai. Colossians chapter 15, sorry, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now if you would turn with me to Haggai where we find our sermon text. Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 <clears throat> Haggai writes this In the 7th month on the 21st day of the month the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel the governor of Judah and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest and to all the remnant of the people. And say this, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts.
1: Good morning, First Prez. Morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning, and as we do gather to celebrate the Lord, we do recognize that it is Father's Day, and we know the important gift that fathers are, men are, one to another, but in the life of the church. And so it's with a sad heart I bring news that our dear friend, Carrie Campus, went home to be with the Lord. We want to be praying for his wife, Kathy. We just want to ask God to surround her with the grace and the peace uh, that she so desperately needs. It was also this week that we held the funeral for Ann Haas, so we pray for Phil as he and his family continue to mourn the loss of his dear wife, and we pray for George Cates, who's in the hospital, Tom Moore, who's struggling, and even got word that Larry Sutton is struggling. Friends, as I give you this list of dear saints who are struggling, we're reminded of how difficult life can be. And so we gather in this place to look to the heavens to the One who holds all things into His hands. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather here in Your house, we pray, Lord, that our eyes would be lifted to You The troubles of this world are many, the afflictions, the difficulties, and yet, Lord, we know in you there is hope. We're thankful for the gift of Jesus who has come to be our salvation, and we know that there is an eternal salvation that waits, and Lord, yet we also know there is victory in this life. And so, Lord, we pray that our eyes would be fixed on the hope that Christ provides. And we pray this morning, Lord, recognizing that these dear saints, these families who have struggled and are facing difficulty, we pray for Kathy this morning with the loss of Carrie, her husband. Lord, we we pray for Phil and his family as they mourn the loss of Anne. We pray for Tom and Sandy Moore. We pray, Lord, for George and Mary-Kates Lord, we we pray for Eleanor and for Larry Sutton. We pray, God, for these dear saints. But, Lord, we recognize that there are others in this church that are hurting, both with physical ailments and emotional struggles and spiritual battles. And, Lord, many of those dear saints sit in the pews even now as we pray together. And so, Lord, we come as the assembly, the people of God And we petition you on all of their behalf, minister to the needs of your people this morning. Lord, provide the peace that surpasses all understanding. May you be our hope and our joy. May you truly be our chief desire. God, I pray that you would use my mouth this morning, Lord, to feed your people, to strengthen them in hope and faith. Lord, I pray that you would protect my mouth, that I would not say anything more nor less than you've given me to say, but God, that I would be faithful to your word and that we, your people, would be changed, that we could become the hands and feet that we are supposed to be as the body of Christ, to care for one another, to honor the name of Christ and to share the good news of hope that he provides. We pray this morning that you would minister in and through us, we pray believing that you will do even better than we know how to ask or pray. And so we pray in Jesus' name. And God, people said, Amen. Church, it's been said that God has better things in store. We've also heard it said this way the best is yet to come. Church, I ask you this morning do you believe this? Do you believe that God has better things in store? Do you believe that the best is yet to come? I ask you that knowing that we live in a time of discouragement. We can be discouraged about the economy, we can be discouraged about our own safety and security, we can be discouraged about our physical health, we can be discouraged about our relationships, or even discouraged in and of ourselves. And this just names a few of the things that we can and are discouraged about. And yet, at the same time, Scripture calls us to hope. Through it all, we're offered a covenantal promise from God to His covenantal people. These words, I am with you. That is a promise that God Himself makes to His people. I am with you. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Romans 8, verse 37, when he says, We will be overcomers. We are more than conquerors. Because God is with His people. And yet we look at our text, we look at the prophet Haggai, and we study it, and we've been paying attention to this story, and we've seen a remnant who has come out of exile after 70 years in bondage finally freed to go back and to pursue their highest good, their chief good, which was the rebuilding of the temple. And we've watched as they've been distracted from that very purpose, and God graciously sends them a prophet to encourage them, calling them to consider their ways. We see that in chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, where two times he calls the people, consider your ways. We saw last week how the people repented, And they return to the building of the temple to their chief good, their their highest good. And God encouraged them with this news. I'm with you. That's what he's promised in verse 13. I'm with you. And yet this morning as we gather in chapter 2, we see a people discouraged. My, how quickly things change. Isn't it the story of our own lives and the tasks that we have to do? God calls us to something and we quickly get distracted. He calls us back. We repent and we return. And then quickly in the midst of doing that which we're supposed to do, we find only discouragement. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Church, understand me this morning. The fight for discouragement is the chief fight each and every one of us will face every day. Discouragement is the chief choice weapon of our enemy. He chooses to use the weapon of discouragement to fight God's people. In our text, we find three different types of discouragement hidden in there. The first is the discouragement that the people had for the work at which they were called to do. Hard, physical labor. The task at hand was not an easy one. They they were called to work hard. It was a struggle. And starting the project is one thing, but facing the grueling, exhausting work was a whole other. How many of us have experienced that in our own lives? Yet for the remnant, this work included going back to a beginning project that they left in ruins. For a long period of time, that required them more work. The remnant now had to prepare the work yet again so that it could be built upon. This meant time. Time consumed with clearing rubble. Time with redressing stones so that it could be fit for use to build the temple of the Lord. Time that was required to organize teams of workmen for the very task at hand. Time, physical labor, exhaustion. The discouragement of just the physical labor required to do the job. How many of us have experienced that discouragement? But there was a second discouragement that came to the people: not only of a hard physical labor, but of a work delayed, a work delayed in actually being obedient. See, we're told that in our text, they started the work of cleaning and and preparing the site. And for four weeks, they did this. But then came, as we're told there in verse 1, on the 24th day of the month, hidden in that little description, holy festivals. And so the work must stop. See, according to the law of God, the first day of that month, uh, the seventh month, required the Feast of Tabernacles, a day of celebration. That same month required on the 10th day of that month, the Day of Atonement, yet another feast in celebration. And yet again, on the 15th day of that same month, began the Feast of Tabernacles, which was to last for seven days. And in that feast, they were to stop living in their homes and go and sleep in tents, in booths, that were to remind them of what their ancestors experienced in the wilderness. Sure, the kids loved it. It was a lot of fun. But the adults just saw it as a waste of time. We're supposed to be working. We're supposed to be doing the things of the Lord. And here we are sleeping in tents for seven days. This is silly. You can imagine all the unfavorable comments that began to stew as they celebrated all these feasts and saw a loss of days of work. And questions began to arise, not to mention all the holy days specifically centered around that chief holy day, the Sabbath, four times in a month where they were to set work aside and live for the Lord. These holy days forced the question, when are we actually going to get to work? When are we actually going to get busy doing the thing that God's called us to do? How many of us have felt the same way when God has called us to honor the Sabbath? When God has called us to not forsake the assembling together? See, the honoring of God requires us to make Him a priority. And that is not simple work. And yet here the people felt that the real work, the work of their hands was being delayed. Yet the honoring of God, while it seems counterproductive, was all so important. How often have we felt like these people? We felt like the work that we were supposed to be doing, the worship of God just gets in the way. Church, we must always be about the highest and the chief good, the worship of God. The church didn't just experience here in the Old Testament discouragement from the hard labor, not just discouragement from time as they viewed wasted, but there was also the discouragement of a work despised. See, in all the celebration of the feasts, it brought back to mind of the age, the good old days back in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 the historical book which tells us the story of what was going on here in Ezra 3:12 we read this but many of the priests and the levites fathers of households and old men who had seen the first house the temple wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid those weeping there were not weeping with tears of joy but tears of sorrow because the house that was being rebuilt was less glorious, was smaller. And so they began to despise the very work of their hands. The temple foundation was smaller than previous. Therefore, it meant that it was less glorious. It seemed to be just a waste of our time. And yet, Haggai here is calling the people out for this wrong perspective. See, the point is simple. Discouragement causes these people to say things like, what's the point? What's the use? We have nothing to show for our work or time. How often have you felt that way? See, these people in this text needed to be lifted up. They needed to be encouraged just like us this morning. They needed to be encouraged in the Lord because discouragement is a work of our enemy. he seeks to derail us from the main thing which is the glory of god church let me be personal with you how have you felt discouraged lately is it the hard labor you face with little progress is it feeling delayed from doing what you feel needs to be done Is it the despising of the progress you made by others? Church, know this this morning. Your Father in heaven sees and knows your struggle just as he saw and knew the struggle of the people in this story. And the God who sent Haggai to encourage this people has sent his word to you to encourage you this morning as well. And so what does God say to encourage them? Well, Haggai instructs the people in how to battle discouragement. He tells them what to do. I like what Sinclair Ferguson calls this. He calls there's three medicines tucked in here that are that are ailments that'll that'll help with the ailments that they face. The first is this: the command in verse 4: look at it: be strong. That's the command that God gives his people, a medicine he gives his people. Be strong. Notice who he speaks to, to the governor, to the priest, and to the people in verse 4. Be strong, be strong, be strong. This is the same word given to Joshua who replaced Moses. When, Mo- when Moses died and Joshua was take- to take the people into the land and conquer their enemies, he was told to be strong and courageous. That word means the idea of persevering. Be strong means to stick it out. To be strong means to don't quit. The idea is to act in strength and obedience. That's the command to be strong. But it wasn't simply just to be strong. Notice in verse 4, they were also told, get to work. Get your hands busy. Carry out the work that you've been given by the Lord. Get busy serving the Lord. This is the central point. Do what you're supposed to be doing. Be faithful to that God who has created all and sustained you. That's your chief good. Glorify God in all you do. Get to work. But it wasn't simply just be strong and get to work. He also adds a third remedy. Verse 5, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. What he simply means here is take heart. Be encouraged. See, church, we need to understand something. Fear immobilizes the fear paralyzes. And that's why people quit. Fear. But he's saying to them, be strong, get to work, do not fear. Don't be paralyzed. Do not be afraid. Isn't this the very same thing that Jesus told his fearful disciples? The story when Jesus was walking on the water and they saw him coming. Let me read it to you in Mark 6, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, They thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And get this this morning, friends. Take heart, it is I, Jesus says. I'm in the boat with you, and the storm will cease be strong, roll your sleeves up, get to work, don't be afraid. So church, I ask you this morning, even in the face of your struggles, in the face of your difficulties, in the face of your discouragements, how are you personally seeking to be strong? How are you seeking to work for the glory of God? How are you seeking not to be afraid? Some of you might be saying here, yeah, that's a good question, Pastor Carr. How do we do that? Well, you don't do it from your own strength. See, and that's exactly what we're reminded in verse 4. When God told the people through his prophet, I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'm with you. See, God is reminding his people that just like Jesus was reminding the disciples in the boat, I'm here. I'm present in your storm. I'm present in your discouragement. I'm there in the midst of your pain. I'm present. This presence is, again, is not the omnipresence that's talked about in Scripture, that God is everywhere. This is the special, covenantal presence of God with his people. I'm there with you in a special way. In the covenantal vows, think of the vows that husbands and wives take for richer, for poorer, in sickness, and in death. God is there. I'm with you. This was the promise that God made all the way back to his people when they were coming out of Egypt. Look at verse 5. That's exactly what it says as he reminds them. This is the same promise God made. I'm with you. But understand that power of God is there, present with us in His Spirit. Look at verse five: My Spirit remains in your midst. My Spirit remains there in your midst with you. So don't be afraid. I'm present, and with my presence, He's saying comes my power, my Spirit, my protection. Friends, isn't this exactly what the apostles learned in the prisons? Isn't this what the apostles learned in the courtroom standing before judges? Isn't this what Paul learned in the shipwreck? Isn't this what the apostles learned as they faced swords? That God was present in the midst of the storm. The God's Spirit, His power, will be made known. And notice this in verse 6. It says, in a sudden and powerful way. Look at verse 6. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Everything will be disturbed by my power. God will intervene for His people. Do we believe that this morning? And notice the effect in verse 7. He will change our surroundings and our circumstances. According to verse 7, he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Not only am I present, but my power will be seen and it will be there protecting and holding you up. See, God's saying, acknowledge my rule. Acknowledge my power. Acknowledge the fact that God wins. He is the victorious warrior. And we as his people, we win because he wins. After all, according to verse 8, he is king over all. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. All is mine. He's ruler over all. And church, hear me this morning. That means he's ruler even over your circumstances. He's ruler even over your discouragements. But I ask you, do you believe this? See, that's the hard thing is the believing, the trusting, even in the midst of the pain. And yet to encourage the church here in the Old Testament, he takes their eyes. Look at verse 9. And he tells them of a promise of better things to come. Look what he says in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember a little bit ago we were talking about the older people remembering the good old days? And they began to compare the the old house compared to the foundation of the new house. And they began to to weep over it. Well, here, ultimately, the prophet begins to redirect that and ultimately point to to what the, the future really holds, which is a glory even better than the past. The greater glory that is yet to come. And church, let me tell you, this morning, as a New Testament people, we know that it already has come. It's come in the person and work of Jesus. That's what was read in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. Let's look at that together. It says, he, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He, therefore, is the greatest glory. It goes on to say, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And don't miss this church. And through him, To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, get this, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, hear this this morning. In Christ, the very essence of the Old Testament temple was fulfilled. What was the purpose of the temple but being the place where God and man could meet together? And that's exactly what we find in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the symbol of the cross. That's what Christ has provided. And it's in and through Christ that the church and all believers are now the temple of God. As his spirit dwells in us. The power of God himself dwells in us. And if that were not good enough, yet there is still a promise that is yet future. Listen to Revelation 21, beginning at verse 3 and 4 and going to verse 21. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Hear this. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Church, hear this this morning. Jesus was a man of sorrows for our salvation. But Jesus is the victorious one. In the terms of the promise, it will be fully realized when Christ, the victorious one, comes again. When he comes He will and we will receive the fullness of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. I like what one theologian said. He said in Christ, God has already shaken the entire world. He's referencing Christ's first coming. When Christ came, everything changed. Everything changed. Yet he goes on to say, yet we also look forward to the world shaking that is still to come when God will bring all history to consummation and everything pictured here in Revelation will be ours. No more weeping, imagine it. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more death. That's the hope. See, church, understand this. Jesus is our hope. So I ask you this morning, is Jesus' glory greater than everything else to you this morning? As your only hope, as your chief joy, is Jesus' glory greater than everything else to you this morning? Church, hear me, it needs to be. Church, it's in Christ and in Christ alone that you'll find true joy. It's only in Christ and Christ alone that you will truly find the peace you so desperately crave in amidst the discouragement and the distress you're in. So may we hear the words of our faithful Savior to his church this morning when he says, Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom it's his good pleasure. Church, understand this. My prayer is that our eyes and our hearts will be fixed on Jesus as the greatest glory of all. For it's in him we find the strength to be strong. It's in him we find the ability to work. It's in him we find the ability not to fear. And It all comes through his spirit in which he says, I'm with you. Therefore, I say to you, church, remember, no matter what discouragement you're facing right now, in Christ, the best is yet to come. In Christ, the best is yet to come. For Christ, our Savior, has overcome all the discouragement of this world, and in him we who believe will overcome as well. And as I prepare to close, I take you back to 2 Corinthians 4, that prayer that Tom used during the prayer of confession. I turn you to verses 16 and 18 and I ask you to hear these words as the Apostle Paul writes to a church that was experiencing so much pain. Paul writes, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, Church, do me a favor and look back at Haggai 9.29 and note God's promise. God said, the Lord of hosts said, I will give you peace. What a sweet promise from our Heavenly Father. I will give you peace. One of the greatest gifts a father can give his family is peace. Peace. And here in our text this morning, our Heavenly Father has promised peace to His children. Church, run to Christ and know His peace. Let's pray. Father, you know our struggles. And Lord, we've heard your word of promise this morning. Give us hearts to believe, hearts to trust. Give us hands and feet of action in doing the work of seeking your glory. Help us, Lord, not to be discouraged by the difficult physical task before us. Help us to not be discouraged by the length of days. Help us not to be discouraged by the words of others. But God, may our eyes be fixed on you and may we find joy, peace, and hope. We pray this now in Jesus' name and God's people said,
0: amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.